I long for the day when we don't need food pantries and we don't need Black Lives Matter protests to state the obvious. Black Lives Matter and people should be fed. Welcome to Contemplating Now, a podcast focused on the intersection of contemplation and social justice. Through interviews with scholars, mystics, and activists, this podcast will focus on contemplative spiritualities, direct relationship with issues of social justice. I'm your host, Cassidy Hall, a filmmaker, podcaster, pastor, and student, and I'm here to learn with you. Bishop Jennifer Baskerville Burroughs of the Episcopal Diocese of Indianapolis, is from New York City. She holds a bachelor's degree in architecture with a minor in urban studies from Smith College, a master's degree in historic preservation planning from Cornell, and a master's of divinity degree from Church Divinity School of the Pacific. Before being elected bishop in 2016, she served in the Diocese of Newark and Chicago. She's the first black woman to be elected diocesan bishop in the Episcopal Church. Bishop Jennifer's expertise includes historic preservation of religious buildings, stewardship and development, race and class reconciliation, and spiritual direction. Well, Bishop Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm delighted to be here. Been looking forward to it. So one of the things I like to begin with is just kind of defining the terms that we're going into for yourself and for our audience. How might you define words like contemplation, and or mysticism? And along with that, maybe how do you see them in the world? I tend to think about those as two distinct things, contemplation and mysticism. And as we were preparing for our time today, I thought, oh, why is that? And I think it's because the practice of contemplation as a spiritual discipline has been a part of my formation as a lay person. I mean, I was baptized as an adult and then went off to seminary not long after that. So learned pretty quickly on as I delved into the daily spiritual practices of our tradition in the Episcopal Church, a lot of which is things like the daily office, morning prayer, evening prayer, Compline, but also wanting to explore other practices that were less vocal or verbal and was introduced in seminary to the contemplative tradition. So taking time for silence, for a kind of meditation practice that focuses on a word or a mantra or an object has been a part of my discipline on and off for 30 years or so. When I think about the mystic tradition and mysticism, to me that kind of, and I'm thinking, you know, I should know from the dictionary, like what are the differences? But to me, that's really more about how we experience the movement of the spirit in moments or experiences that seem, at least I think of as more supernatural. You can't explain them. You can't conjure them up. You know, I can, I can choose to enter a contemplative moment but the experience of the mystic Christ or having an experience of mysticism is something that's beyond my ability or desire to plan it. It kind of just happens. And I will admit to having had experiences that I would classify as mystical in my lifetime. They're memorable, but I, I couldn't say that I could have recreated them if I wanted to. It just happened. That distinction of contemplative life or contemplative practices as like a rhythm and a ritual, something that we create and that we engage with, but yet the mystical is boundless. It's not tethered to rhythm or ritual. And I I love that. Would you be willing to share one of your mystical experiences? 
Sure. I, I would say, you know, it's interesting because I... I've not had a compare and contrast kind of conversation about mystical experiences, really. So I, I'm wondering with a new hunger about what that's like for other people. But there's an experience I had that falls on the, on the mysticism spectrum. I remember I was in a church as a teenager doing a sleepover with the youth group for a period of time. In the years when I was a seeker, I attended an AME Zion church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Zion Church that was across the street from me and all my friends went. So I remember though being at this church and everyone was downstairs doing whatever activity they were making cookies or something and I went up into the sanctuary that was darkened and just there's no sanctuary lamp it wasn't that kind of a space it was just the worship space and I remember just getting in a pew off the pew sort of on the floor and feeling like the embrace of what I would say like God's embrace. I could feel it palpably, like my body being hugged in an embrace that was letting me know that things were okay. And it was a, you know, a fraught time. I've always had a robust prayer life. Before I'd ever attended church, I was taught to pray at home and so have this long, like I've never known a time when I didn't talk to God. So this was just a part of that conversation, but I think I'd gone up to the sanctuary for quiet and prayer and and felt God's presence in a, in a physical way. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And in the Episcopal tradition, you were elected and then consecrated as the 11th Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Indianapolis in 2017, making you also the first Black woman to be elected diocesan bishop. And in an interview with Sally Hicks just recently in February of 2021, you said, I just think racial justice is the work that has to be done 24 hours a day, all the time, every place. So along with that, I mean, that's a pretty clear statement. There's not really much to unpack there. That's pretty clear. And in talking about things like the rhythm we create with contemplative life and this meeting place of mysticism with God, I wonder what is your vision for the church in doing racial justice work? And do you see it as connected to like our practices that we engage with, or do you see it as disconnected and maybe this more mystical thing that happens when we begin doing the work? Well, let me describe it this way. You know, I feel like I've been on a journey in many ways of understanding the the depth of need to be attending to dismantling racism and all the other isms. I mean, I just have always been passionate about it, but in these current moments just feel like we all need to lean into it. Like there's no escaping it. Whereas I used to think, well, you know, we can take a break. And there are lots of things that are critical, except that as the more I've dived into the work of actively trying to be intentionally anti-racist as an institution of the church, it makes me understand that whether we're talking about climate change, whether we're talking about how we, how we follow Christ in our tradition, which is about understanding that all are beloved. So at the very basic nature of who we say we are as Christians, where in the Episcopal Church, the mission is to reconcile all people to God and one another in Christ and to be about recognizing the full dignity of every human being, then there's no way to, for me to be a Christian and not to be attending to this work of dismantling racism all the time. And because it's so pernicious and so everywhere, at least in this country. I mean, it's not, it's different in other places, but this is the country I know. 
I feel like there are, there are always opportunities. And understanding how racism really, really works and seeing it as not just a social justice issue, but a theological imperative means that we have to talk about it and do and work on it all the time. Yeah, I appreciate you talking about it as a theological imperative and, you know, any, anything from our, our God images and our icons, you know, and the way they depict whiteness predominantly, you know, our stained glass in our old church buildings, those kinds of things. And I, I guess my question for you along with that would be, how important is the work of recognizing the past missteps in our particular settings? Um, how important is that to the fullness of the anti-racist work we need to do? Well, you know, if you're thinking about what does it mean to be beloved community where we're reflecting everyone and all of the richness that all of the cultures that we might be in any particular place have to bear means that we have to make space. And so I'm all for trying to figure out how do we actually just share all of that richness on a rotating basis, knowing that instead of assuming that there's only one way or only primacy of one culture, set of images, and everything else has to be fit in amongst the edges, to think about how do we actually honor all of them, which means some things need to be off center. So that, you know, you hear the word decentering whiteness a lot, right? And I'm thinking, well, I guess that's the term. Because there is a way which we just, without reflection, automatically center whiteness in this country. What does it mean to actually to be sharing that space? And as a leader in the church, I'm grateful for congregations and leaders who are asking the questions. Why are all the stained glass windows only white people? Now, I will say I've, I was rector of a church in Syracuse, which was very, very integrated racially, black, white, almost 50-50, and the first Native American to be ordained deacon in the Episcopal tradition was ordained in that building. And there had been a storm that had happened in 1998 that took out a set of windows. And so as I was coming in as rector in 2004, they were installing newly designed windows in the place of where this plain glass used to be. And I will say it's a different thing to worship in a space where you have Native American images and faces in the stained glass, as well as the white Jesus that was over the altar, right? Like you can't help but pray and think differently because we're formed so much by those visuals. We have congregations here in the Diocese of Indianapolis who are saying, why is the only black image on the wall the bishop's picture? Like maybe we need to do something about that and ask the question because there are other images we can choose. And of course, Jesus was not white. Just to have that conversation about how we center some images and ideas about things more than others means that we can get to some real change that reinforces the work we're doing outside the church, you know? So we've been having this disjointed experience of like, we're all about dismantling racism on the streets of the cities we live on. But then we come back in the churches, you know, pre-pandemic, come into buildings and it's like white, 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 white. We're waking up, all of us are going, yeah, that's that doesn't make sense anymore. It was okay for a while, but how about we enrich the imagery here? There are a couple of things you said in that that were really striking to me. And one was, I'm thinking of, you know, the writings on the Black Christ, Kelly Brown Douglas, Albert Cleach Jr., Diotis Roberts, and of course, James Cone. The way that that was a way to center Blackness, yeah, in a way that was honoring and elevating. I don't know where I'm going with that, but... Yeah, no, just, I mean, I, I'm just thinking, in my personal story, not having grown up going to church much, I had two years in this AME Zion church, 
and then joined the Episcopal Church sitting in the pews when I was in college and then was baptized the year after I graduated college. I'm grateful that my understanding of what it means to be a Christian was in a context where we were talking about the images of how Black people are portrayed in the news. Like, we were, you know, there was an anti-racism committee that was really active at my church in the late 80s. And then Kelly Brown Douglas was being published, and she was in New York City at a church. And now she's a dear she's a dear friend and mentor. You know, she's now at Union, Episcopal Divinity School at Union. But my understanding of what Christianity is, is based on hearing her preach as amongst the first people I ever heard preach in person. I don't know how, so, you know, it's very much intertwined, that experience of understanding this particular way of seeing liberation theology, the Black liberation theology movement. It's really formative for me. And not that my experience needs to be everyone's experience, but it would be my hope that we are now being formed in this more expansive way of understanding what it means to follow Jesus. One that's not new. It's been around for a very long time, but the voices are now coming to the fore in a way that is really important for this time. Yeah, yeah. And I appreciate you sharing about your church experience. Also, while I was preparing uh, to interview you, I noticed you have a degree in architecture along with a minor in urban studies and a master's in historic preservation. The reason I name this in the context of this conversation, so putting on maybe your architect's hat and your historic preservation hat of buildings and structures in the context of social justice, and I know this is a big question, how do we navigate when it's time to quote unquote burn it all down or to dig through the rubble, navigate the history, learn it, own it, and rebuild with what's left? I I wanted to study architecture because I loved beautiful buildings. And having lived in places that were not always beautiful, you know, housing projects are not beautiful places but they're typically surrounded by beautiful places. And as a child, um, I didn't get my driver's license until I was 28. So I walked everywhere. I took the subways everywhere and, and explored New York City. And that formed me because one of the things that I would say is that as a child, I knew that the BQE, the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Queens Expressway, so you can hear my Brooklyn accent because I can't say those words without betraying my accent. But the BQE runs alongside people's apartments such that you could see them cooking dinner in their kitchens, but the way it just cut through neighborhoods, the way Arab and we were building the highway systems didn't really care about who was living there, right? So urban renewal came and did a lot of damage. But I knew that as a six-year-old because I could see it and wondered why that was okay as a child. So, you know, here we are. Generations are have passed since then, just 40 years, 50 years outside of that urban renewal sort of highlight time. And people know that that was wrong and we have opportunities to repair it because a lot of those highways are past their lifespan, right? They need to be somehow dealt with. And what are the opportunities we have? And so I'm saying all that to say is that we can't pretend to not know the damage that some of those projects have had, the damage that redlining has meant for people's access to the quote unquote American dream. And wherever we come to, to, wherever we are in understanding that reality gives us an opportunity to choose different. And this particular point in history means we actually can do a lot of change to rectify some of the damages of the past. And if we cannot be um, wallowing in the, do I feel guilt or shame about it? Like, feel the feelings and let's get to work to make the world better. I don't know if that gets there, but I, do, I just think, you know, there's history, there's baggage. It's always been thus. But we're, if we're alive today, 
we have an opportunity to kind of figure out how to band together to make things different. And that being said, the last year of us, of our history has shown us that we struggle with caring enough about how to make life better for other people. So there's opportunity. And there's also, I think, the need for us as a country, particularly, to learn that it's really about everybody and not just what is going to get me through the day and my family alone. Like, we really have to care about other people. Yeah, and to your point, we have such a tendency to talk things to death or feel things to death before we actually begin just doing the things and showing up. And I think that's that's a huge part of the work. What does it look like to show up and just start cleaning up the rubble and then deciding what to do together? Right. You know, as one example, I've, I've been in touch still with the folks in Syracuse where the church I served had been integrated because the Black congregation that they had birthed and then was reunited with was needing to leave its building because the highway was going to come right through. Well, they built the highway across the street, but they demolished the building anyway. And now it's just like an, an empty corner. And like this horrible sort of scar on the environment and on people's hearts because that didn't need to happen. But the folks didn't have agency or power to make it different, right? So now that highway needs to come down and people are like, well, but the thing is having the highway cut through this neighborhood makes it easier for people to get to the suburbs and they don't have to go through the city. And they've been fighting about this since 2006 and it's still up for conversation. I check in on it every few weeks and I'm going, why is it so hard to actually say to the people who are living with the effects of this highway in the midst of their neighborhood to say, we're going to actually do this thing for these people and not worry about what happens to the people, to the suburban commute, because actually there are other ways to get to the suburbs faster. So let's just do this. But it's, it's complicated doing hard projects like that, where you're trying to actually take into account people's concerns. But overwhelmingly, it's those who've got resources and power who get privileged over those who, who don't. And if we can begin to put ourselves in different places of empathy for the sake of healthy change, be willing to give up some things, you know, um, Eric Law, the priest who does a lot of the work around, you know, the Kaleidoscope Institute that he created on anti-racism, he wrote in one of his early books that we believe, you know, that Jesus hung on the cross and we've constructed a world, this is paraphrasing, in which there are some people who are hanging on the cross like for eternity. And that's, you know, even Jesus came off the cross eventually. <laughs> How about we like take some people off the cross for a minute and do something for the sake of those who don't ever get a break. Yeah. Do you see a way in which contemplation, that practice feeds our action in terms of our activist work in the world? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, uh, those two through the tradition and certainly my experience has been that when I give myself a time to be restored and to have my brain synapses just rest so that they can be rebuilt and rewired, like that's when new creativity comes and energy comes for the, the long haul. And I, I'm really clear about all of this, that the work of building beloved community, of dismantling the systems that oppress people, is a long-term work and I hope for a little progress in my lifetime. I don't expect that it'll be done in my lifetime because it's a huge human project, right? And that we do with divine help and inspiration. And so 
we've got to pace ourselves and spell each other <laughs> in the work, meaning, you know, let some folks, I, I like, I run, so I like the running metaphors, you know, I love it in a track race when you have a pacer and the pacer is setting the pace so that the other, so that the runs who are competing can actually hit their splits towards whatever record they're trying to break. And at some point, you know, the, the pacer can run faster than the racers to keep ahead of them, but then the pacer drops off because they can't keep that up forever. So they, they might drop off and maybe another pacer comes in to spell the pacer to take a break. So, you know, this is a long, long lifetime work. And if we don't step off the track to rest, to renew, to take our nutrition, to pray, to see what the Spirit's going to open up to us if we are able to quiet our minds and our hearts for a bit, then, you know, in doing that, we get renewed to be able to get back into it. But, you know, I chase rest the way Jesus chased rest. It's hard. It's because our inclination is to, to feel productive by doing all the time. And even when you stop, there's always another thing. But human bodies are not constructed to do that, to go without stopping and resting and being renewed. And renewal and growth happens in the time of rest. This is a scientific fact. So why fight it? And maybe even we'll find ourselves in a mystical encounter with God, feeling a sense of a hug. Yeah. So something else I read, which I found really interesting, was a defining experience you had when you found yourself near the World Trade Center the morning of September 11th, 2001. Would you mind sharing that? Sure. I think about it all the time. It was such a moment for our whole country and just we're living with the ramifications of that day in so many ways right now. But I had gone to the church where I was baptized, Trinity Church Wall Street, to be a part of a consultation with the um, soon-to-be Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. Rowan Williams was convening folks who do spiritual work and leadership across the church, and I was privileged to be invited. And we were supposed to assemble for 8.45 that Tuesday morning. I remember arriving early and going to the bathroom. And the bathroom in the parish house, which is no longer there, they've demolished it and built a new building in the last couple of years. But this was an old, cranky building from the 1920s. And I remember going, this bathroom is still noisy. Like, these pipes are as loud. And, you know, and what I was listening to actually was the the first plane hitting the building, the South Tower, because we could feel the building shake. And I thought it was just the old building. And then when we went out to the parish, um, one of the classroom buildings where we were going to have our session, we thought there was a confetti festival of some kind because all this paper was flying. And then we began to hear the news. And so, you know, here I was with all of these people, some of whom I was meeting for the first time, but the majority of whom I've known since I became a Christian. <laughs> and as the day morning wore on, just found ourselves kind of huddled in a staircase. And so the, the piece that is always with me is staying in this staircase of this parish house building and not knowing if we were going to get out and hearing reports that we thought might be of bombings happening across the country. We thought the Space Needle in Seattle had been hit. We didn't know. But being a, how old was I? This is 2001. So it's like 35. And thinking that, you know, I hadn't done all the things I'd wanted to do, but if I had to die that day, then I was at peace with it because I was at the place where I'd kind of had a second life, you know, being baptized and having this new life in Christ. And I thought, well, if I'm going to die anywhere, then I will die with the, the man who baptized me, who was up the stairs a few steps. 
and then, you know, that didn't happen. We escaped as the North Tower was falling. And I had, I was living in New Jersey at the time, but I had lived in Staten, I grew up in Staten Island and could walk blindfolded the way from the Staten Island Ferry Terminal to Trinity Wall Street because I was there every day for meetings, choir rehearsals, church. And I grabbed a hand of a, 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 friend, a, a woman I met that day and ran blind all the way to the ferry terminal. It's about, I don't know how many blocks. It's a 10 minute walk, but just, and got ourselves on the last boat to Staten Island. Went back to the old apartment I lived in before grad school. It rang bells until someone I knew could answer and kind of waited it out till my mom came home and was able to be reunited with me. So, so that was the day. And there are very few days now that I, I mean, I don't think about it every single day, but there was a time when it was just all I could think about because of the losses and the griefs and the survivor's guilt and all of that. But the only, it's one of the few times where I felt fearless about death. Death and me are not like, I, I want to be here as long as I can, God willing. Right. But that's the moment where I thought, well, this is what faith is about, right? Like if this is it, okay, God. Um, and I pray that when it is my time to die, that I have that sense of ease about it. Thank you for sharing that powerful story. There's something that's clarifying, it seems, about moments in life when our backs are up against the wall and there's just no option and we, we have to give ourselves to the mystery that is. If you're willing to share, have you ever experienced that feeling outside of that day? I have not. You know, it's just interesting to me. When that happened, I was ordained maybe five years. I was ordained in 97. So not ordained very long not even long enough to have actually been with someone as they died at that point. And so a couple of years after that, being able, you know, we had people who died on that day, but I wasn't with them at the point of death. But having that experience taught me something about how to be with people as they die, which, you know, I've counted as a gift. Yeah. So a little bit of a shift here back into, um, yeah, social justice activism and I wonder if you could speak to maybe how important it is to work on these issues, not just in our heads, but in our hearts and and bodies and maybe how, yeah, like the prophetic imagination or prophetic preaching is a way to kind of guide us there and the importance of that. Yeah, I think it's all, I mean, it's, we're not going to be able to think our, if you could think ourselves out of this situation, I think we probably could have managed that already. But it's about changing hearts, which means changing daily decisions. And so I, there are people who are much smarter about this than I am. And the, the kind of field about anti-racism, you know, work is shifting and growing. And it's almost, you know, it's becoming a discipline in some ways, right? Because of the scholarship that people are bringing to it. And so I'm learning all the time. So the one thing I would say is that there's always more to learn. And you can't just read your way out of it. I think it really boils down to some simple things like place and relationship. So in this pandemic, one of the things I've been really intentional about while we are not traveling in the ways we've been used to is that instead of driving through the neighborhoods that I would just drive through to get from point A to point B, I drive to those places and walk the neighborhoods because I want to walk every day. And so for the first few months of the pandemic, and I still do this, I mostly have my same routes that allow me to walk out my front door and walk. 
But now I'm choosing different directions. I'm going to neighborhoods where people say, oh, you know, that's a problem neighborhood. And I'm like, well, have you walked around that neighborhood? Do you know that neighborhood? (laughs) Or do you see it as a problem because of your distance from it, from a comfortable place and only know what you read in the news? I think there's a lot of hard work that can be done by putting ourselves in those places where we feel like the other exists or where we might be afraid to go. We can begin by just walking and being comfortable in different spaces, which grows a piece of our capacity to encounter and be willing to be transformed by difference, maybe letting go of presuppositions because we now have new facts literally on the ground. And then it's about who are we in relationship with? And I know that there are those who disagree, but I know I've been profoundly changed by having friends of different cultural and racial backgrounds. And, you know, I'm an African-American, Native American person who's in the minority in this country, historically, by numbers. So I have to, I mean, I actually I don't have to have friends of different races. I'm choosing to do that because I find that it enriches my life and my particular experience of childhood has assumed that kind of diversity. And if we didn't grow up with that kind of diversity, I don't think it's too late ever to find ourselves in different spaces where we can grow our friendship circles. And so I always ask people, tell me about the people who regularly get invited to your dinner table when we're not in the pandemic, (laughs) right? Or folks will say, well, you know, I go to this club. I'm like, well, why don't you go to this other club? Think about the places where you choose to put yourself. I I play tennis here, but why don't you play tennis in the park? where everyone is mixing it up. Oh, those are the kind of hard choice. I mean, they're technical choices, they're logistical choices, but we go out of our way to have experiences that are meaningful to us in all kinds of ways, except for the ones where we have to encounter different people of different races and classes. But we can do that. We just have to decide today, I'm going to do that. And what you're saying too, I mean, that's that's kind of a, a, a practice too. I see my morning walk as a contemplative practice and it happens to be, you know, in my neighborhood park where I see my neighbors and, you know, we all wave and kind of holler good morning at each other. But that idea of, yeah, that the practices of our spirituality can more deeply engage us with all of humanity. Yeah, I really think that's a part of the journey. You know, I just think there's probably more scriptural warrant for it. We haven't thought about it that way, but there are stories of Jesus on the borderlines, the borderlands. You know, the Good Samaritan story that we love so much happened on the borderland. And yet we don't often willingly take ourselves there to hear, but other stories are playing out that way on those places. And, you know, life is hard and it's busy and it's hard to be challenged by things that because life is already hard enough. And yet... You know, racial oppression is harder. <laughs> like, why, why don't we just take, we could actually make life a little easier if we're doing some of this hard work. And in the aggregate, then I think we begin to think about who we vote for differently. Our policies look different. We get to decide what impacts on our civic life are influenced by the kinds of things we think about and encounter in the world. And it won't happen if we're doing the same old, same old. We get the same old stuff we've been getting and no one's happy. Well, except for really one percenters, probably. There, there's a segment of people for which this is working, right? But the rest of us, the, the majority of us, this is not working. So I want to flip a question backwards a little bit as we come to the end of our time together. And you've kind of answered this, but I wonder if we could kind of reframe it. So let's take a movement like Black Lives Matter and ask, what can Black Lives Matter teach us about God and spirituality? 
or contemplation. Voices that have been intentionally silenced will not be silent forever. And I think the thing about Black Lives Matter is that it's this new iteration of the voices of those who have been oppressed, silenced, forgotten, left out, are not going to be kept down for long. And the tradition over and over again tells us that there will be prophets who will speak on behalf of those who are the oppressed because, as it happens, God actually has a preferential option for God's oppressed people, right? And so I I believe that there's um, a continuum in that movement that's saying in this particular moment, this is how we need to express, I think, from a, a spirituality point of view, um, Black lives not to be oppressed, destroyed, left out. And that there are lots of other voices that also need to be raised up. And it's not a zero-sum game if there is some leading in that movement at the moment. But I, I've watched Black Lives Matter become a, a chant to become a really controversial thing. And I'm like, I don't understand what's so controversial about letting Black people not die at the hands of the police or lifting up the values of the extended family instead of just, I'm going to go it alone with my nuclear family, which is, I hear that a lot, you know, the anti-family. And I'm going, let's just think about what we are saying when we talk about family and how there are other ways to do it that are actually more scriptural and biblical than the way we tend to do it in this country. So anyway, it's, it's a complicated thing. I do think those who are leading in BLM are doing us all a good service in many ways from having us look at how we dispense our resources in service of our communities, from policing all the way to mental health issues and everything in between, to asking the question of why do we even need this movement? You know, I long for the day when we don't need food pantries and we don't need Black Lives Matter protests to, to, to state the obvious. Black Lives Matter and people should be fed and not hungry in the richest country in the world. Yeah. Mm. Bishop Jennifer, thank you so much for joining today and for taking the time to speak with me and sharing your stories. I really appreciate it. Well, it's been a, it's been a delight to think through some of these important questions. So thank you so much, Cassidy. It's been a joy. Thanks for taking the time to listen to today's episode. To support this work and get sneak peeks of new episodes, join me at patreon.com slash Cassidy Hall. The podcast is created and edited by me, Cassidy Hall. Today's episode features the song Trapezoid Instrumental by Emily Sankofa, which she has generously allowed us to use. Please find this song and more from Emily Sankofa on your favorite streaming platform like Spotify or by visiting e-sankofa.com. The podcast is created in partnership with The Christian Century, a progressive ecumenical magazine based in Chicago. The podcast is also created in partnership with Enfleshed, an organization focused on spiritual nourishment for collective liberation. For liturgical resources, head over to enfleshed.com. 